is now strong evidence to support that people who are poor and less well-educated have more health problems and die earlier than those who are wealthier and more well-educated. Physicians are willing to address underlying causes of disease, but don't often know how best to treat social determinants. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Anderman. She's an Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Anderman is also Founding Director of the CLEAR Collaboration that aims to help frontline health workers take action on the social determinants of health. Dr. Anderman published a review article in CMAJ outlining how physicians can take action on the social determinants of health in clinical practice. I reached Dr. Anderman in Montreal. Hello, Dr. Anderman. Hello. Why did you want to write this paper? Well, actually, um, I've been thinking about this paper for many years. And um, a long time ago, I had worked um, during my PhD and afterwards in the area of genetics and uh, policymaking and genetic screening. And I think for a long time, uh, it had been troubling me that in spite of all the money that is being poured into the genetics and genomics and uh, personalized medicine industry, it's not really clear to me how much impact this is going to be making on human health and on improving people's lives and particularly on global health. And so around um, uh, 2007, 2008, I actually went to work at the World Health Organization and I had an opportunity to work with a team that was working on the uh, WHO annual report 2008, which was on improving access to universal primary health care for all. And I was really thinking that this is where we need to be going and this is where we need to be putting our energy and our money. And really what is making people sick is a lot of the social conditions in which people are living. And we have to find out how we can act on this. But many people say, of course, that the actions required are very high-level actions, intersectoral actions, um, things to do with trade laws, things to do with uh, education policy and distribution of wealth and tax policy and so forth. But also people working in the health sector, they also have a role to play. And I was very interested in knowing how we can play a bigger role and how we can be catalysts and advocates for change um, and get these intersectoral partnerships working and also make sure that things are working really on the ground at the community level. Um, there's a colleague who works in policy, and while, of course, it's very important to have policy, um, policy about um, parental leaves and policy about childcare and all sorts of things of that kind, um, in many countries around the world, a lot of these policies exist on paper, and the research that we were doing, which um, in, in countries like Brazil and Niger and Pakistan and Bangladesh show that sometimes these policies don't really trickle down into the communities where people are living and, uh, and don't really create the changes and the supportive environments that you would hope. So I was thinking that the frontline health workers, they're really there on the ground on the front lines and they really can have an important voice to support our vulnerable patients. We often hear the term social determinants of health, but it's a huge umbrella concept. What exactly do you mean by social determinants of health in your article, and how are they linked to health outcomes? Well, in an attempt to better understand why people get sick, doctors have traditionally focused on biological factors such as genetics and on individual behaviors like smoking and sedentary lifestyles. 
However, more recently, the scientific evidence is demonstrating that human health is also strongly influenced by the physical and social environments in which people live. The World Health Organization uh, defines social determinants of health as the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems shaping these conditions of daily life. While this may sound vague, I have many concrete examples from my own clinical practice and also from a Common Core teaching session that I've been doing for many years with family medicine residents at McGill, where they bring their complex cases of intertwined health and social issues from their own clinical practices so that we can brainstorm in interprofessional teams ideas for better supporting vulnerable patients and improving health. For instance, residents bring case examples that include isolated seniors living in poverty, non-status refugees who lack access to care, pregnant women or families with young children who are newly arrived to Canada, patients suffering from mental illness or addictions, women experience violence, and so forth. So the stories are often quite disturbing, but more often than not, we're able to identify multiple avenues for better supporting these patients that residents can then use when they see their patients again at their next clinic visit. So one example that stays in my mind was a woman from the Middle East who was sponsored by her husband to come to Canada with her four children, but due to an abusive relationship, they were divorced, and now she's depressed with chronic pain, and she can no longer afford her medications since she's no longer on her husband's insurance, and she's not a permanent resident, and she doesn't speak English or French, and she's refused social work, perhaps out of fear that they will take away her children, and she also refuses to see psychiatry. She has very little money and did not get any alimony or child support. So one can therefore clearly understand how her current situation has led to and exacerbates her medical conditions. But while I'm concerned about her welfare, I'm even more concerned for her children because social adversity in early childhood takes an even greater toll on health outcomes and this impact can persist over time. The ACE study by Felidian colleagues has shown that children who experience multiple forms of abuse at a young age, including witnessing domestic violence and growing up in a family with mental illness or addictions, leads to children being 12 times more likely to have, to have attempted suicide, seven times more likely to be alcoholic, and 10 times more likely to have injected street drugs by the time they reach adulthood. So living in harsh environments can really lead to a range of poor health outcomes, particularly for children and youth. What are some concrete ways physicians can help patients? So the scientific literature in this area has really exploded in the last few years, and there are a number of promising approaches that frontline healthcare workers can use um, at multiple levels, at the patient level, at the practice level, and also at the community level. So first, at the patient level, physicians can simply ask patients in a respectful and sensitive way about their social challenges. They can provide them with advice. They can map out and refer patients to local support services, facilitate access to these services and to other benefit programs to which patients may be entitled, and also act just as a reliable resource person throughout this process. So really the first step in addressing often hidden social issues is asking patients about their social challenges in a sensitive and culturally acceptable way. Next, there's the practice level. And there's, again, multiple approaches for reducing barriers to accessing care for underserved groups. 
and also for helping them to better navigate the health and social care systems. So these include providing patients with bus fare or childcare services to make it easier for them to attend appointments, documenting their language preferences and identifying the language skills of people working in the clinical practice or providing interpreter services. There's also extending the clinic hours or making sure that the clinic location is close to where people in need are living and working. Offering a welcoming and culturally safe practice environment. This is particularly important, and we've heard a lot about this in terms of racism within the healthcare system and things that we can do to combat that. Providing health workers with different targets or even financial incentives and benchmarks for improving outcomes for vulnerable patients. Um, integrating patient social support navigators into the healthcare team to help patients reach the different supports that can help them. And also creating opportunities for providing healthcare services beyond the clinic walls, such as outreach to local schools or partnering with community groups. So indeed, there's many things that can happen at the practice level. Um, and finally, uh, not to mention what can be done at the community level, which is also extremely important because ultimately you want to create those supportive environments for health within the community. So physicians, nurses, and other allied health workers have a very powerful voice and they can speak about the health impacts of social challenges to encourage broader community action. And indeed, there's many examples of clinical community partnerships that have created initiatives that can have really far-reaching effects. For instance, introducing violence prevention programs in schools or increasing parks and green spaces, banning soda vending machines, creating bicycle lanes, introducing farmers markets to combat food deserts and so forth. So of course, health workers are not alone in this, but they can partner and they can advocate um, with public health and with local community groups to create broader social change that will improve conditions for their vulnerable patients. Given that physicians are already busy and overworked, how worthwhile is it to spend time to address social determinants of health within clinical practice? Well, I'm also a clinician, and I understand what it means to be busy. I'm most concerned about the missed opportunities for prevention and care that slip by under our noses every day. When physicians fail to identify hidden social challenges, this can lead to misdiagnosis and a path of inappropriate investigations or inappropriate care plans, which not only uh, costs in human health and suffering, but also wastes time and money and resources for the system. For instance, failing to ask about exposure to violence in the workup of pelvic pain or prescribing medicines that patients cannot afford and then learning at the next visit that the patient never filled the prescription. In one study, over 40% of patients reported that their family doctor is unaware of their struggles, including obtaining enough to feed themselves, arranging transportation to clinic visits, or paying for medicines. And another study documented that even when women presented to clinical care with bruises and broken bones, only 14% had been asked by their primary care provider about violence as a potential cause. So I really feel that we're missing out on a lot of good that we could be doing. And by not asking, which doesn't take very long, um, we're actually sometimes going down the wrong route um, rather than providing uh, good clinical Care. So it's not just an issue of time, it's really a matter of good clinical practice. And clinicians need to have a heightened awareness of the clinical flags 
and patient cues so that they can use this selective inquiry based on these clinical considerations to work social history questions into the patient encounter in a more seamless way. Actually, a former master's student of mine from Pakistan did a study that showed that physicians who know how to ask about social challenges are more likely to report helping their patients work through these issues. And indeed, all patients might struggle with social challenges and require some support in various spheres at different stages in their life. And challenges like discrimination or isolation or exposure to violence, these can occur at any age and regardless of socioeconomic status. So we really have to be open to this and we need to know how to ask and we also have to know what resources are out there in our local communities to be able to help our patients in these situations. In your article, you mentioned some tools and particularly the CLEAR toolkits. What is it and how can it help physicians to address social determinants of health in their patient populations? The CLEAR toolkit is a clinical decision aid that was developed by an international collaboration of researchers and policymakers to help health workers treat the presenting health problem, ask about underlying social problems, refer to local social support, and advocate for more supportive environments for health. And it's available free of charge in over 10 languages and also includes a trainer's manual. The trainer's manual is particularly important because the toolkit will need to be adapted to the local reality that clinicians are facing. So, for instance, we did do an adaptation for our local community in Côte d'Ange in Montreal, but we also have colleagues who work about 15 minutes drive to the north. But, of course, there they have a different set of local patient population issues and a different set of local resources. So you really need to map out the specific resources that are available locally for your patients. So the trainer's manual then helps you to adapt the toolkit to this local reality, which is not a very long process, and then you can use it to educate health workers how to use it and help you also to measure the impact on patient health and social outcomes and then try to scale it up more broadly. So if you want to download a copy, it's available online at mcgill.ca slash clear. But, of course, the CLEAR toolkit is just one of a growing number of clinical tools that physicians might want to use. And there's also a poverty toolkit that was developed by Gary Block and colleagues at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto. There's other computerized tools that are being developed by Ryan Mayaley and and the team in Saskatchewan. Um, And so there's many different clinical practice guidelines from different professional organizations Um, to help frontline health workers ask about issues such as lack of employment, food insecurity, discrimination, um, abuse, and other factors that can also affect uh, their care. So uh, really, there's a more detailed list available online at CMAJ, and I would encourage people to browse this list and see what tools they find would be helpful in their own local context. Thank you for speaking to me today, Dr. Anderman. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I really hope that uh, this will lead to a culture change in the way that we practice and support vulnerable patients in future. I've been speaking with Dr. Anne Anderman, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McGill University in Montreal and Founding Director of the CLEAR Collaboration. To read the review article she wrote, visit cmaj.ca.